Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open up to Luke chapter 20. You will notice that you can read your Bibles and your hymnals and your handouts because of the new lights. It's pleasant, isn't it? It's wonderful. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 20, starting at verse 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, and they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her, and in the same way all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels. And are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. And then he said, to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes. You like to walk around in long robes, and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and chief seats in the synagogues, and places of honor at banquets, who devour, devour widows' houses, and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Now let's... Let's walk through this, this text. It's the Sadducees now who come to Jesus. right? We've had the chief priests, we've had elders, we've had Pharisees, we've had scribes. And we see the scribes again in this passage later. But here it's the Sadducees who come this time. So who are they and what do they believe? Well, they're one of the sects, sects of the Jews at this time, and they had a particular theology very distinct from that of the Pharisees. What did they believe? Well, the Sadducees rejected, rejected all the oral tradition that the Pharisees loved. 
They, they, they got rid of that. And so they only accepted the written word. Though the Pentateuch was for them very much more important than the other parts of Scripture. The Pentateuch came first and everything else was sort of second. They really put an emphasis on the first five books. They did not believe, obviously, as our text says in verse 27, they did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. So they did not believe in the immortality of the soul. They just believed that the soul dies along with the body. They rejected divine sovereignty. They accommodated themselves to the Romans, embracing the Romans' customs. And so they were quite happy with the status quo. They didn't want things to get too stirred up. They were happy with the status quo. They had made peace with the Roman uh, rulers. And, um, And so guess who they were popular with? The wealthy. The wealthy loved them, right? The wealthy said, okay, things are going well. We got our money. You know, let's not stir things up too much. And so very popular. The Pharisees, though, were popular not with the wealthy, but with um, the lower classes. And so here, the, the, the wealthy love them. They're not quite as popular as the Pharisees, but still one of the, the, the main uh, groups of the Jews at this time. And so the Sadducees asked Jesus a question about marriage in the afterlife. I mean, think of it. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the immortality of the soul. And they asked Jesus a question about marriage in the afterlife and how, of all things, it relates to Leverite marriage. Now, what is Leverite marriage? If you turn to Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, you would read this. And this is, this is commanded in the Old Testament law. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears, and this was the key thing, it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of, to the elders. You remember what happens? He's to go or she used to go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brothers in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. An act of judgment. She rebukes this man to his face, quite literally, with spit and everything. Right, so if a wife 
it was it was commanded of Israel, and I mean, again, this we read this and we're like, whoa, and everybody starts thinking about, you know, brothers in laws. Um, I mean, this is this is part of the the uh, the ceremonial laws and the the cleanliness rules for Israel, right? And so. Um, so are abrogated in Christ. But look, if, if a wife loses her husband before a male child is born, that was the key. How does the name of this man continue on? It's a tragic thing for a man's name to end, for his line not to be carried on. And that was something that they wanted to make sure in, in this society was harder so if a wife loses her husband before a male child was born, then this Leverite marriage was expected. The brother of the husband or the nearest relative, think of the book of Ruth. This is what's going on. Now, what's the purpose to carry on the name of the deceased brother? And, not, not stated in this passage, we would assume it has to do with caring for the widow. That she might have uh, be sustained. How strictly this was practiced during the time of Jesus, we don't know. We just don't know if if this was if they were if they had dispensed with this or if they, these Sadducees were paying lip service to it. So, so the Sadducees describe a situation where a woman's husband dies and is married to his brother, and that repeats seven times. Right? She goes through seven brothers. And then the Sadducees ask this disingenuous question in the resurrection, therefore. Which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And so, I mean, just just for starters, their question is ridiculous. They don't believe in the resurrection. They, like the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and elders, are simply trying to trap Jesus in some saying. And, uh, you know, want to point out some absurdity in... Uh, that seemingly arises if the resurrection is a true doctrine. Right? So this is, this is coming out of their lack of faith in the resurrection. They're sort of asking it to point out, well, if you believe in the resurrection, look at all these absurd situations that you can't explain. Right? They've made a wrong assumption. They think they've got him, but he answers them again with the truth. And he gets them. The sons of this age, he says, and that's a way of saying those that belong to the here and now. The sons of something just means that you're related to that something somehow. And so he's talking about the people of this age, the sons of this age, the sons of here and now, this side of glory. Okay, just like Judas is called the son of perdition, which means that he had an inevitable connection to damnation. Perdition. So the sons of this age means that those that have an inevitable connection to the here and now, right? They are living in this age, this side of glory. Jesus says the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to, the, to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. A couple things stand out in Jesus' answer. First, in a nutshell, the obvious, right? He is saying marriage happens in this life, 
but there is no marriage in the life to come. But notice he says, marry and are given in marriage, which I I think is just a way of him saying, um, it's a way of him speaking of men and women. Men marry, women are given in marriage. Right? Our marriage ceremonies still reflect that truth. The groom is up front and the bride is what? Is walked up the aisle by her father and given to the man. So Jesus is speaking of both men and women, husbands and wives, and using language to point to that, the reality of that authority. Now, those who attain to the resurrection, it says, neither marry nor are given in marriage. The grounds of that statement are given after that. He says, one, they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels. So immortality is a factor in why there is no marriage in the life to come. And then two, they are sons of God, sons of the resurrection. And so here Jesus is saying this, in the life to come, marriage does not happen or is unnecessary because man is immortal and undying. In other words, one of the main reasons for marriage, this side, is the reality of death. Right? One of the main reasons for marriage um, in, this, in this life, and the main reason it's superfluous in the life to come, is there's no need There's no need in the life to come to propagate a godly seed. There's no need to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply because there's no death. Everybody keeps on going. Okay? There is no longer in the life to come the reality of death and so no longer a need to propagate. Everyone lives forever and never dies. If death is removed, sustaining life by the birth of new image bearers is unnecessary. For this reason, Jesus says that the sons of, of the resurrection, those who have God's sovereign, by God's sovereign grace have attained to the resurrection of life, are like angels, right? Immortal beings. Angels do not marry. On this point, Ryle says this, we must not conclude from these words that the glorified saints are exactly like the angels, They're like the angels in the sense that they can't die. And that's what the passage says. He goes on, he says, Angels do not have bodies like ours, but are spiritual beings. The meaning appears to be that in freedom from death and disease, and in complete deliverance from a condition of being in, of being, in which marriage and birth are needful to supply the continual waste occasioned by death, the saints will be like the angels. So being like angels in that they cannot even die anymore, men and women in the life to come are not married. Marriage serves a purpose in this life. Companionship, mutual help, and procreation. Right? In the life to come, we're in the presence of the Lord. Right? We're in the glorified, we're with the, the, the glorified saints, and so there's no need for marital, marital companionship. There's a companionship in the life to come that's even more glorious. Although it is a marital relationship, and we'll get to that. 
In the life to come, we are in a condition where there is no adversity at all. Right? So there's no need for help. And there is no death, no losses of people, so no need for procreation. All those things that marriage is for here become superfluous in heaven because of the conditions in the life to come. And all will be better there. But, but again, this gets me thinking. One of the implicit points this passage makes is this. Marriage is for the propagation of a godly seed in this life. In other words, often when people ask me why we have so many children and we don't have that many, I tell them it's because we are trying to conquer the world. Right now, obviously it's not just enough to produce children. There must be a corresponding commitment to disciple your children, to teach them, to train them, to discipline them, to love them so that they might not depart from the Lord and then become a hindrance to the kingdom and its growth. But we are producing armies for the kingdom of God. Right? We are producing the next generation of those who will proclaim Jesus Christ is king. Who will lead his bride, the church. Who will add to the descendants of the godly through the bearing of more children. And so fruitfulness and multiplying while being faithful to the calling uh, to parent is not evil. As the society and even the church today would make you think. We trust. We trust even as our carbon footprint increases. So do the mouths that sing praise to the God of the universe. And God desires worshipers. God desires children to sing his praise. God desires and blesses his children with fruitfulness for that purpose. Souls to sing his praise. And the life to come, all of that is unnecessary. No marriage, no procreation, no loneliness, No bad thing at all. Now, some say that this passage says that in the life to come, we will not be men or women, but will be sexless like the angels. First of all, and Augustine makes this point, so so this has been wrong in the church for a long time. Augustine makes this point, if Jesus had intended to make the point that we will be sexless in the life to come, he could have just said, you are mistaken, she will be a man. Augustine says that. It's great. He could have answered the Sadducees and said, look, you're mistaken. She's going to be a man or she's going to be a sexless being or, you know, that, that doesn't matter. But he does not say that. He says she won't be married. Um, here it is in Augustine's language. And though it, is, it was a fit opportunity for his saying, she about whom you make inquiry shall herself be a man and not a woman, he said nothing of the kind. Now, um, listen to this from, from uh, a good book on 
on sexuality. This is Werner Neuer's uh, Man and Woman in Christian Perspective. And he, he engages this question. For us, the crucial question is, does Jesus here speak of a complete abolition of both sexes in the state of perfection, or should the passage be understood differently? Jesus' reply to the Sadducees at least affirms that in God's eternal world in which mortality and death are abolished, sex, procreation, and the bodily kind of existence necessary for procreation will cease. In the Lucan parallel, he's, he's taking his main text as the Matthew passage that's parallel. In the Lucan parallel, Jesus expressly mentions the immortality of the blessed which make marriage and procreation unnecessary. They cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels. The great commission, he goes on, for man to procreate is therefore valid only for God's first creation. It does not apply in the perfect eschatological new age. Whether with the abolition of marriage and procreation, the psychological aspect of sexuality is also abolished, cannot be deduced from this text. Jesus is not discussing the question whether humanity's sexually determined character persists in another unimaginable way in the resurrection. Against the assumption that after the resurrection, human sexuality is completely put aside, he says, it may be objected that the redeemed retain their identity in their resurrected state. And sexuality is inseparable from a person's soul. One might further object that the New Testament attests a resurrection of the body. Right? The one you have glorified. Disputing with heretics, the church fathers Augustine and Jerome already emphasized that the resurrection involves the body. And that includes sexual particularity. This fits in with the fact that the resurrected Jesus in the Easter accounts appears, albeit in a transfigured mode of existence, as a man and not as an asexual or bisexual hybrid. According to Zimmerman, the eradication of sexuality would be incompatible with the principle that God does not hate anything he has made. Further, Jesus remarks that the perfected will live like the angels must not be understood as a promise of an asexual final state. For angels, according to the Bible, angels, according to the Bible, have a sexually determined appearance. Go read the end of Luke. Two men appeared. Right? Those were angels. Now, all of that to say there is nothing in this passage or other scriptures that posits some sort of sexless, genderless, androgynous existence in the life to come. Now, why is it that people assume that today? I mean, that's like, duh. Do we have to think for a moment why people would want that and assume that? Now, some less... Well, I've got a number of points on this, so bear with me. First, people can't imagine a world without marriage. People can't imagine a, an existence without marriage. So they just assume that it, it must not just be 
um, dispensable in the age to come. It's hard to conceive of a world without marriage and that that relationship. And so people just assume, well, um, that must be impossible. Second, androgyny is au courant, right? It is fashionable. Androgyny is fashionable. And marriage, correspondingly, is disparaged in our society. So when Christians posit some sort of male and femaleless eternity, or or so-called Christians do so, they're just casting a longing eye to the world and what is fashionable. Right? And the reason many Christians posit a male and femaleless or androgynous afterlife is they can, cannot conceive of being, think of this, they cannot conceive of being released of their own lusts toward the opposite sex. In other words, so pathetic are we that we reason they're there better not be women around because how will I not lust? In other words, God perfecting you. Oh, you get my point. Here's what Augustine said in the city of God where, where he was chewing on the same questions. Augustine in the city of God says, And the sex of woman is not a vice, but nature. It shall then indeed be superior to carnal intercourse and childbearing. Nevertheless, the female members shall remain adapted not to the old uses. I, it's, I know it's scandalous language, but that's how, that's how old pastors used to talk. Nevertheless, the female members shall remain adapted not to the old uses, but to a new beauty which so far from provoking lust, now extinct in the life to come, will excite praise to the wisdom and clemency of God, who both made what was not and delivered from corruption what he made. Isn't that beautiful? Right? No, every, the, the relationship completely changes. It's one of absolute purity in the life to come. In every way in the glorified state, the old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Lust will be eradicated. And the true beauty of male and female as reflections of the perfect image of God will finally be seen and understood and rightly appreciated and not corrupted by fallen Minds and sin. Third, God made man male and female, both in the image of God, so both equally important in reflecting that image, and he called that good. Male and female are good, and so what is good and what is pre-fall good will exist into eternity in this case. Fourth, some just don't like the thought that they will not be married to the spouse they love so much in this life. And so, like the Sadducees, make this case in a disingenuous sense. If you are saying, I'm not going, you know, people object. If you're saying, 
I'm not going to be married. Well, then I'm going to push you to the extreme meaning of this passage to make you quiver, right? Are you saying that, you know, um, that's just wrong. Fifth, you will be, you will be married in the life to come. Corporately, as the bride of Christ to the Son of God. So there will be marriage. There will be one marriage in heaven. And it will be a glorious marriage. It is the first marriage. It is the marriage upon which our marriage is based. Right? Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Glorious marriage. One, the body of Christ, married to the bridegroom Jesus. Six, if you can't abide the thought of not being reunited with your spouse and carrying on in the life to come as you did here as a married couple, You have not sufficiently considered the miseries of this life and the glories of the life to come. Marriage is good, but it is, as the Apostle Paul puts it, strapped with the cares of the world. It drags a man down to the earth, is what Paul says. Even... Even the fruitlessness I lauded earlier is is cursed in that the woman brings forth children, but brings forth children in pain, right? And forever being with the Lord is what is magnificent about the life to come, not a restoration of things that were sources of, of pain and misery in this life. And I mean that. Marriage is glorious. I love my wife more than any of you. I do. And I can't imagine waking up in the morning without her. But it is also a family and raising children. And it, 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 is, it is the cares of this life. It is the cares of this world. Right To be in heaven is not to be with your friends. It is not to be with your spouse. It is not to be with your mother. It is not to be with your father, though it wonderfully is those things. It's certainly not to be with your pets. But it is to be with the Son of God. Basking in the radiance of his glory, gazing upon him, worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords right before you. Does even the best day of your marriage compare to that day? Does your thinking about that day pale a comparison to your your wedding day in this life? 
Seventh, Jesus says in verse 36, they are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. In other words, what will define believers in the age to come is their relationship to God Almighty and the power of his son in his resurrection. They're sons of God, sons of the resurrection. The sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve labored and had a world to conquer through their fruitfulness. And the glorified believers are sons of God, sons of the resurrection, and so find their first and only meaning to be in their relationship with God Almighty. Sons of God. You will be a son of God. A son of the resurrection. Not wife of Andrew or husband of Sarah. I mean, think of it this way. George, George W. Bush is not introduced as Mr. Eagle Scout. He's introduced as Mr. President, right? Though he may have been an Eagle Scout. But he has a glory that far surpasses that one, right? And so he's called by that name. You will be a son of God. You will have that glorious status fully consummated in the life to come. So, I mean, so to bring this around, doesn't this perspective that your marriage, that your marriage is a temporary arrangement for the purpose of glorifying God in this life, doesn't that help you better fulfill your calling as a wife or a husband, a mother, a father? Doesn't it help you hunker down and persevere and do as God has called you to do? Uh, make, the, make the most of this purposeful institution. But remember, you didn't get married so that you could ignore Jesus in the life to come. Nor in the life here. Because God, even in this life, does not broker any competitors. You were blessed with marriage for this life for God's purposes. Now, Jesus goes on to, to smack the Pharisees or the Sadducees directly for their denial of the resurrection. Jesus quotes Exodus. And when it says that, that God is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, we learn that the present tense has theological meaning. Right? By this designation, we learn that God is the God of the living and that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob even now live and are living. So, and, and notice, notice who it is who says, Teacher, you have spoken well. It's not the Sadducees. It's the scribes who say that. Right? And, and so Jesus has a new audience. They're like, ha-ha. And, and they come along, ha-ha, you know, to the Sadducees. And like, he got you. And then, and then Jesus goes, zoom, right to them and focuses attention on them. And he doesn't relent. He goes after them now, giving it another example. Jesus quotes Psalm 110 in answer to his own question about how the Messiah could be understood to be the son of David. Ryle summarizes the whole of Jesus' words like this. He, he asks them to explain an expression in the 110th Psalm where David speaks of the Messiah as his Lord. 
At this question, this question the, the scribes could find no answer. They did not see the mighty truth that Messiah was to be God as well as man. And that while as man he was to be David's son, as God he was to be David's Lord. Their ignorance of scripture was thus exposed before everybody who was watching. The scribes. Nothing so mortifies the pride of man, Ryle says, as to be publicly proved ignorant of that which he fancies is his own peculiar department of knowledge. The scribes were to be teachers, but they did not understand the scripture. But not stopping there, Jesus turns to point out their wicked behaviors to his disciples. The very end of this passage. Not only are these scribes bad teachers, but they are bad examples. They think and they do wrong. And notice his his opening. Beware. Beware. Jesus, the good shepherd who, who warns his sheep. Jesus, the watchman, telling his people that there is danger right in front of them in following these scribes. Read through the Gospels and take a pencil and mark every occurrence of a warning by Jesus. And you'll see that Jesus frequently warns, right? We should not be surprised, right, that he warns because that is the work of a prophet, And continues to be the work of elders and pastors today. Warnings, 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 warnings. He gives them a picture of what the scribes are really really like. They walk in long robes to be seen. They love respectful greetings in the marketplace. You know, they they love it when people appeal to their pride and their vanity. They love the chief seats in the synagogues, right? They, they want religious honor, the chief seats in the synagogues. They love the places of honor at banquets. Not only do they want religious honor, they want like, like civic honor. They want the city to honor them, and so they get the, the, the great places in the banquets. And then we learn of their true motive, They devour widows' houses. What does that mean? That means they take advantage of the weakest because they want money. You know, those guys who go around selling new roofs to widows. And then six, for appearance sake, they offer long prayers. Through all of that, through all of that wickedness, through all that vanity and pride, they want to uh, look pious. And so, to summarize, Jesus is saying that the scribes are vain, proud, gropers for honor in church and society, greedy and falsely pious. And it sounds like it sounds like mega church pastors, doesn't it? No, it sounds like us. It sounds like you and me. Vain, proud, gropers for honor in church and society, greedy and falsely pious. And God, God help us and heal us from these these sins of the flesh. Uh, May He make us poor of spirit, humble, emptiers of self, right, generous, 
truly holy and pious, right, like the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus says this, in the last thing in the passage, they will receive greater condemnation. And everyone I read on that verse states that this is proof that there are lesser and greater punishments for unbelievers in hell. It's just a fact of Scripture that there are greater and lesser punishments in hell, just as there are greater and lesser honors in heaven. Right? There's something true about Dante's Inferno, though the specifics of that work are probably completely off. Um, just as there are differing degrees of glory in heaven, there will be differing degrees of misery in hell. Though in both cases, with the glory and the misery, every degree, whether high or low, will be dense and powerful. Right? Thick. And and this statement spoken of the scribes corresponds to that statement made by James, the brother of Jesus, when he speaks to teachers in the church. Think of this. He says of them, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such we will incur a greater condemnation. There the words are mega crema, great condemnation. Jesus says, Parisos, crema, or abundant condemnation. But the point is the same. The scribes, the scribes were to be teachers of Israel, but instead they were leading the people astray. You remember what Jesus said. He said, whoever causes one of the, these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. I mean, what an image given to the Pharisees who were leading people astray, teaching wrong doctrine, setting a terrible example. And it's sobering, right? May God redeem us from such wickedness in our own lives. May God cause us to know what is right and to live what is right. And insofar as he called us to exercise authority over others, teach and example what is right. May we remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again as we have been fed on it. Lord, we thank you for Jesus teaching us on marriage and that we can be free from a sentimental view of the life to come and we can think of it more more rightly as the place where Almighty God is, and I shall be with him. And Lord, we pray that as these scribes were so careless in misleading those who have been given the task of teaching and leading in the church, Father, I pray that you would, you would cause us to repent of our hypocrisy, 
to the sins that lead others astray, to the pride and vanity that wages warfare against your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.